0: Remember, this is supposed to be a two- to three-hour show. If it gets much over two, I start freaking out or melting out.
1: Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. From the recently thawed thawed South, I'm Joe. I had no better idea.
0: From the land of no
1: sale, I'm Moss. From the currently freezing Midwest, I'm Bill. This is episode 379, recorded on Sunday the 23rd of January. Livestream information is at mincast.org slash livestream. If you see something that you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mincast at mincast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Mintcast subreddit. Chat with us on Telegram, Discord, Facebook, or post directly at mintcast.org. First up in the news, Linux Mint Edge is out. PinePhone Pro Explorer Edition can be ordered. GNOME and Plasma have new versions you can test. NVIDIA and Wayland play nicely on Plasma, and we are all mocking Cosmic. In security, FOSS is a national security issue. Microsoft decides not to force locks. Then, in our wanderings, I fix things, Moss installs things, Bill works on things, Norbert writes things down, and yeah, that's it. Alright, first up in the news, Linux Mint's brand new Edge ISO is available to download. Users with newer hardware may run into other incompatibility issues on the regular Mint 20.3 release running kernel 5.4 LTS. Fortunately, Linux Mint 20.3 now has an edge ISO featuring the 5.13 kernel and the Cinnamon desktop. 5.13 introduced support for AMD GPU FreeSync via HDMI, along with many other hardware improvements. However, 5.13 did not fully support all the modern hardware like Intel Alder Lake processors. You can choose to download the separate Edge ISO or update the Linux kernel from the Update Manager under the Linux Kernels option. I'm thinking, since uh, now PopOS has has its own kernel maintained,
2: when the next LTS comes out, uh, I assume Mint will follow the kernel that is provided by Ubuntu, but will? pop os lts have kernel updates because yeah, hardware compatibility is one of the biggest issues with releases that don't have the latest kernel
3: yeah and i can see why it would be important for pop os when when they uh to rev their uh kernel to make sure it's compatible with any new hardware they might have coming out
2: so my question is how much is that true for mint as well i have assume less so but still people might want to install it on very recent hardware
3: Well, that's kind of the problem I ran into with this one. I needed to get into the update manager and go with the more up-to-date kernel just to get the video driver working. It's nice to even, I don't know, if you install with a a kernel that you're comfortable, well, anybody that writes an ISO, put the kernel that you're comfortable supporting on that ISO and then give the option to update to the newer kernels if you want to, but make it clear that, you know, there's always going to be a chance that things might stop working. I've always thought uh, Mint's claim to fame was that, you know, you could pretty much get this stuff working on anything. Okay, so you can now pre-order the PinePhone Pro Explorer Edition Linux smartphone. Pine64 announced today that their latest PinePhone Pro Linux-powered smartphone is now available for pre-order for everyone who wants to buy it. The PinePhone Pro Explorer edition is aimed at Linux developers with an extensive knowledge of embedded systems and or experience with mobile Linux, said Pine64. You can pre-order the PinePhone Pro Explorer edition from the official website for 399 US dollars. I mean I just wish if they if they would release this thing and then the lineage people would would uh, offer an official image for it, I would go to it right now. I would use it right now, no problem. But there's just, I I think it's going to be real hard for most people to break out of the Android uh, ecosystem.
1: There are some attempts to make it so that Android applications will run. Um, I can't remember the distro that I tried that had that built in on my Pine phone, and it just did not work really well. It took forever for anything to load. I think it was one of the Fosh ones. Yeah, Manjaro and Fosh. Yeah. Where it had the like Antbox built in so that you could try and run Android applications. And it just was not implemented well. And I, I do need to bust out the PinePhone and try out a couple of more um, distros on it and see how they all work. Because I was enjoying doing that. But yeah, I'm, I'm not going to spend. on something that's not going to be a daily driver for me.
3: Well, can you even make calls and send text messages on that Pine phone?
1: If nothing else, you could make Google calls. I don't know. Probably you can. I I didn't put my SIM card in it. I I probably should have, but, you know, I I like my Note 10+. Plus.
3: Yeah, I've got one of those too. It's one of the most powerful devices in the house.
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, we haven't heard too many people complaining about the Pine phones. I mean, you did buy them expecting to have to work on them and expecting it to take a while to get there. The, the main problem I see is if they release a phone that will work in two or three years, won't the phone be obsolete by that time?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and... What you don't hear about, yeah, you hear about people buying them, but you don't hear about people using them as daily drivers. You hear everybody that buys it and uses it saying it's not ready to be a daily driver yet.
3: Yeah, Graham on Late Night Linux, he had a, uh, he was sort of forced into it because he had his phone went out on him on a weekend and he had this pine phone that they were passing around like a peace pipe. And uh, he tried to get by with it for a weekend and he just said, Uh, even with his technical know-how, he was really struggling to have a reliable something or other to even send messages on. So it will be interesting when somebody gets a hold of this, uh, the new one, because it is is a considerable upgrade hardware-wise.
1: Well, it'll be interesting when a major manufacturer decides that um, they don't want to pay the Google tax and actually implements Linux properly on a mobile device.
0: Well, I bought a used Google Pixel 3A XL for $160, and it works just fine, and it's upgraded to Android 12, and it's not
1: Linux. And the hardware is pretty much on par.
0: I'm saying $400 for a phone that you may not even be able to use as a phone. When you can get a phone that you can use as a phone for 160
1: And it's not like the Pine phones use uh, top-end hardware. They're using, you know, a generation or, or, or three back.
0: I'm pretty sure my Pixel has better hardware.
1: Yeah. So you're paying less money for a used device that you get more functionality out of, and just performs better. Now, I still love the Pine phone. I still think it's a really good idea, and it will eventually lead to something that's usable and and good, but it hasn't yet.
0: But at least it's not a purism.
1: Oh,
3: gosh.
2: Can you elaborate on what's wrong with purism? What's wrong with purism
0: is that they are charging a premium price for a phone that doesn't work
2: yet. But that's just the one that was all manufactured in the U.S., no?
0: Well, no, the one that's all manufactured in the U.S. is $2,000. The one that isn't all manufactured in the U.S. is
3: $1,200. The problem with purism, I mean, and oh gosh, uh, the problem with purism is all of the grand promises that was made and the, the overextending they did in terms of what they promised that thing would be able to do. And it was being – the difference between Pine64 and Purism is this. Pine64 makes this thing and sells it to the community as a community project. Purism has this thing that I don't even – I've yet to see it that actually exists. And it's sold as a product.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I also get the feeling that, you know, um, Pine isn't really trying to make a profit on these devices. They're trying to get them out there to, um, you know, actually make a market.
0: They're literally donating their profits to other open source projects. They make so little on everything they sell. The
1: Purism product is called the Librem 5. Correct. And they are trying to make a profit. But yeah. I mean, it's good to make money, but the market really isn't there yet, so let's move on. Yeah. And that's my
2: cue. <clears throat> GNOME 42 desktop environment is now available for public testing. The biggest changes are around the GTK4 and Libadwaita components. Most of the GNOME apps were ported to LibadWeta to implement a dark style preference, so these apps will be able to provide both a light and a dark theme. Other important changes are the replacement of the gedit text editor with the more modern GNOME text editor and the replacement of the GNOME terminal with the new GNOME console, which is intended to be a more user-friendly terminal. Other changes include the revamped screenshot utility, an improved GNOME software center, lots of Wayland improvements in matter, and improved fonts. The final release of GNOME 42 is expected on March 23rd, 2022. I'm really looking forward to this. Libadwaita will either be a really good, or really bad thing in the short term. In the long term, I think it might be a good thing.
3: Am I am I uh, in, properly informed here? With GNOME Forty Two and Libadwaita, if a distribution wanted to properly theme GNOME Forty Two, they would have to drop in replace the entire Libadwaita. Is that how that works?
2: I think that will be the case.
3: Okay, so like Ubuntu could just make Lib lib Yahoo and things of that nature.
2: But under the hood, that might be a less hacky and, and more clean, and a cleaner solution. I'm not sure. It, it won't be as easy, that's for sure. But what the GNOME team wants uh, is to have a platform that so that they can tell developers, you can come and develop for our platform because we have the tools to provide the consistent experience for both developers and, and users.
0: Right. The GNOME team wants a system that nobody can use but them.
2: Uh, debatable.
3: <laughs> it's so. Gnome. I don't know. Gnome's got to put a desktop on people that are using this in banks and and big businesses. You know, and Red Hat's got to charge people for this. I can almost understand. I don't necessarily like it. I don't necessarily dislike it. But I can understand why they would need. S- something that is a bit harder to break with you know the more complicated spaghetti code like you might see in other desktop environments not to say that that's the case but i can i try to see both uh, both sides of the argument with gnome i was just going to say the the only thing i can almost forgive everything else about gnome except for the tray icons yeah, I mean, I can I can almost put up with everything else.
2: We will get back to the track ones within a couple of new spaces here. <laughs> but yeah, uh, my understanding is that if distro developers will be able to drop and replace early beta and properly theme things, that it's not that big of a deal. The problem seems to be that they, they won't be able to use the, their current uh, CSS-based themes. But if they are able to recreate that uh, in a library, then it should work.
3: It's just forcing them to do it right.
2: Well, it's sort of going back to how theming worked before they were essentially CSS sheets, I, I assume. But at least the uh, application that use LibOdveda are using a new revamped version of the Advaita theme. So not the one that was previously there. That had some weird, I don't know, at least for me, the, the gradients didn't look right in the previous Edveda. That's why I started using Yaru, which doesn't have as noticeable of a gradient at, at, at the top bar. But the new Edveda seems, uh, seems to be more discreet. Also realized that literally means the only one or the one. So even its name was a foreshadowing for this change. Oh, nobody noticed. I think I literally
3: read that written somewhere. Yeah, I think I i when when you install the theme, I think it says the only one somewhere. I can't remember where I've seen that, but when you when you said that, I thought, yeah, I've seen that somewhere.
0: Plasma 5.24 introduces the long anticipated support for fingerprint readers to unlock the screen. As well as to authenticate in apps, as well as to in- authenticate with sudo on the command line. Another interesting feature is a brand new overview effect that lets users control their virtual workspaces and find search results from KRunner all in one place. The new overview effect can be toggled with a Super W keyboard shortcut. The Plasma Wayland session continues to receive improvements in KDE Plasma 5.24, which introduces support for colors greater than 8-bit, a new drawing tablet page in system settings, and the concept of the primary monitor. It also looks like the QT Quick-based effect in Plasma 5.24 will work better on NVIDIA GPUs, and Plasma will now shut down faster than before.
2: Could you not set the primary display before in Plasma?
1: I'm not sure. Um, I only ever used Wayland on like tablets and stuff, so.
2: So recently there was the 50 minute bug, uh, project, uh, announced by one of the Plasma devs, which aims to fix, uh, problems that the average user might encounter within 50 minutes of using the desktop. And I think one of the things he mentioned i think it was an interview on destination looks and one of the things he mentioned is that uh, plasma doesn't really handle multiple displays well right now more specifically when you uh, attach and detach uh, displays
3: yeah i've got plasma but it's on a laptop that seems to work just fine and i was getting on with wayland too just fine until i started well that week i had to use obs and that kind of that kind of forced me to move back to x
2: I used to realize that people keep saying that plasma needs to simplify the settings app and have less menu entries in the settings, and now they added yet another one.
3: <laughs> I I I think that criticism is always gonna exist, I guess that's fine, but plasma just is for the person that wants to have that sort of granulated control over their system.
2: Yes, but it could be both accessible for the average user and usable for a power user. What I think Plasma needs is two modes in their settings, so you can toggle between a simple and an advanced mode.
3: I suppose there is room for that. I would argue it's still better than the Windows system, where you've got this new... Even on Windows 11, you've got the new settings menu, where you can almost do everything with, and yet you still have the old legacy control panel. They overlap there. When they come out with something new, they hold on to the old thing. Eris... I hope I said that right, said Plasma is if you take a window manager flexibility and give it all the options of a GUI. Yeah, I can I can see the logic in that. Again, it's just I, I think I think diehard Plasma users use it because they can literally take it and do whatever they want with it. I mean, I've seen some pretty out there Plasma desktops. I get on fine with it, but I I will admit it takes – you've got to have the time to sit down and learn the workflow of the uh, settings manager in order to get the most out of it.
1: All right. Ubuntu 2204 LTS will be powered by Linux 5.15 LTS and ship with GNOME 42. Canonical recently shared a few details about their plans for the upcoming Ubuntu 22.04 LTS regarding the Gnome and Linux kernel stacks. Due for release on April 21, 2022, Jammy Jellyfish will be Canonical's next long-term supported release and will receive updates for at least 5 years. Canonical employee Sebastian Bocker revealed the fact that the desktop will be based on the GNOME 42 stack, but it won't ship with GTK4 apps. Ubuntu 2204 will most probably use GNOME 41 apps, just like its predecessor, Ubuntu 2110. On the Linux kernel front, Sebastian Bacher said that 2204 will stick to the Linux 15 or 5.15 LTS kernel by default, which will be supported at least until October 2023. Some users had high hopes for 2204 to ship with kernel 5.16 as it includes support for new hardware. However, Bakker also revealed that the OEM and HWE hardware enablement kernel flavors will probably be upgraded to Linux kernel 5.17 at some point during Ubuntu 2204's lifecycle.
2: And this brings us back to the kernel version question. So do I understand it that because it's an LTS kernel by default that Ubuntu LTS will not receive, the regular version will not receive any kernel updates as long as, I mean, any newer feature updates as long as 5.15 is uh, supported?
1: I wouldn't be surprised if they kept using 5.15 because it is supposed to be a long-term support and it is supposed to be more stable.
2: Yes, but this means that any hardware that, comes out this year, or early next year, will not have any support by default on Ubuntu LTS?
1: Uh, Base, I mean, it'll probably mostly work, and then if you upgrade the kernel manually, then yeah, you, you will have that functionality.
3: You'll get hardware enablement by Canonical. Well, there
0: are lots of rolling distros out there to try if that's what you really need.
2: Well, if there's an option, because Ubuntu has that uh, update manager, where you can, for example, switch between uh, NVIDIA driver versions. So if users can update to a new kernel via GUI, I think it's okay.
0: Does anyone know if Martin's rolling rhino is still going?
2: I just heard about that last week, and I want to try it. I'm not sure how stable it is, because it just switches to the development branch, which I assume is the same as if I were to install the new, if I were to install a daily snapshot of uh, Jami right now. Well, let's
3: see. I'm on the GitHub, and it looks like the last commit two years
0: ago. Wow. Well, Martin hasn't been a canonical employee for about that long.
1: Most new users of Linux are not going to be trying to install Linux on brand new hardware, so I'm not sure how much of a concern that actually is.
3: Well, now there's a README updated 11 months ago. I'm not sure how much updating it needs because it, could, presumably it's just a script. All right, new mock-ups of System76's plan for applets in Cosmic Desktop. POP underscore OS code explorer Eduardo Flores. Oh, yeah, POP bang underscore OS uh, explorer Eduardo Flores dug up a figma design document made by System76 that gives us a better look at upcoming Cosmic Desktop. Vanilla GNOME is pretty averse to menu bar items, and it groups several functions into one menu. On the other hand, system 76 mock-up for the Cosmic panel embraced task-specific applets. These panel design documents show very nice defaults that will just work for most users. But they also show that System76 want to, uh, also want to give users choices. In the screenshots, we can see the applets are open to repositioning, which you can do in Vanilla GNOME, but is a key feature of other desktop environments. Well, you can't do it in Vanilla GNOME, but is a key feature in other desktop environments. The sound applet shows media controls rather than only give us player controls. In the applet, there's an option to embed media controls in the panel instead. Throughout all of the applet designs shown in these documents, there's a real sense of convenience within the UI. Reducing the number of trips one needs to take to the main settings app to tap to tackle simple tasks like swapping audio outputs, switching Wi-Fi networks, or switching between Bluetooth
0: devices. And we have the screenshots linked in the show notes.
2: And they look interesting. They look basically like how Cosmic looks currently on Pop. And I assume this, is, this could also be because it's a work in progress. Uh, because it still has the workspaces and application buttons at the top left. And the calendar in the middle. But at the right, it has a bunch of little... Icons and options and everything. This makes me want to have these uh, tray icons more in GNOME as well, and it certainly looks more coherent and well and better implemented than you can, than what you can get with any extension on GNOME itself.
3: I I want to get behind the GNOME people, but the tray icons is just something I really I honestly I wish one of them I could talk to one of them and have them give me an argument against having the tray icons other than well it's just too hard to do or the the code is complicated you know you install you you install flagship gnome distributions like fedora and red hat and they've got these extensions installed and running so what honestly and on the other hand if you're going to make it something that has to be an extension make the instant the extension ecosystem a little bit more fluid and uh less of a hack
2: there have been multiple unofficial projects where people would create a front end for the gnome extensions where you can not only manage them but install them and search for them which is what the gnome extensions app should be
0: we also need to keep in mind that the new cosmic desktop is going to be written in
2: Rust! So I tried to think about why, what the reason could be for no not having icons, and maybe just they want to have the panel look super clear with only the absolute necessary stuff, which I mean, I would argue that icons are a necessary element, but maybe they want to make it more symmetric, because on the left, the size of the activities button, and on the right, the size of those buttons that open the settings drop down menu is about the same. But if you open any application, then it won't be symmetric because you will have an extra if we have the name of the application on the left so i think the most likely reason they don't want the tray icons is that every application that would that would have a tray icon would have its own icon and they don't want uh, the look and feel of the panel to be inconsistent because currently there are only plain white icons which is sort of understandable but they could have just another dropdown specifically for tray icons or they could implement it in the what the existing settings of the menu?
3: Yeah, I don't mind them being hidden. I just want them to be there, you know.
1: Next up, we have our security update.
2: After a look for J, open source software is now a national security issue. A meeting at the White House on Thursday saw executives from some of the tech sector's biggest companies meet with administration officials to discuss the need for better security in the open-source community. The list of attendees include big names like Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, Oracle, and Apple, among others. It's not hard to see why the White House has convened its meeting right now. There's clearly room for improvement and, thankfully, attendees of the recent White House meeting seem fairly amenable to it. At the meeting, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan apparently called open-source software a key national security issue. Similarly, Google's President of Global Affairs and Chief Legal Officer Clint Walker published a statement to the company blog, arguing that he wanted to see better support for the open-source community. For too long, the software community has taken comfort in the assumption that open source software is generally secure due to its transparency and the assumption that many eyes were watching to detect and resolve problems, said Walker. But in fact, while some projects do have many eyes on them, others have few or none at all. In his statement, Walker further suggests increased public and private support for open source projects, the establishment of security and testing baselines, and the development of a rubric for identifying critical projects, the kind that gets a lot of views
1: um i actually had a discussion on this topic um friday night on um <clears throat> the linux lugcast and um an interesting point was brought up uh you have like single points of failure here and you have one person a- as was the instance with log 4 you have one person running that and then you have all this uh Uh, flack that they're getting because something happened with log4j and it wasn't secure it was a one-man show that he was basically doing in his free time and not really getting paid for and you have these major corporations making millions and billions of dollars that aren't donating back so i'm hoping this is what they're talking about by you know talking about supporting open source and um Uh, what is it? Increased public and private support for open source po- projects. So, yeah, if you get more support and you get more money going towards these projects and you're paying these developers, they can actually dedicate more time or, you know, have more people working on these uh, critical aspects and, Yeah, log4j was something relatively small and any type of logging is important, but um, so I'm not gonna say it's unimportant. But then it ended up in everything and then an exploit comes up for it and everything is impacted because it's literally everywhere. So you you can't really complain and blame the developer if you're not gonna support him.
2: The weird thing about log4j is that, if I understand correctly, any logging tool is supposed to be able to read the state and output of a program, and then log it. But Log4j also had uh, privileges to execute commands—just
1: arbitrary code right there from the log. For some reason, or they put it in for some type of testing purpose, and then didn't remove it, or they used um, code snippets from something else that did need that functionality, and yeah. That type of thing happens when you're a one-man band.
2: I think HTTPS is also developed by a single person.
1: Considering how widely used that is, that guy needs a lot of support, and basically it needs to be his only focus if he's going to be the only guy working on it, which means yeah. we need to pay him that way.
2: Was Lock4J really the only major catalyst for this White House meeting or VerderAdder?
1: No, it wasn't. Um, actually, there, in this article... There was um, another. They actually said that there was another one recently, but I can't seem to find the section. But there, there are others
3: that have had similar issues. There's hundreds. This is nothing new. I mean, th- there's nothing unique about Log4j. Log4j just brought it a little bit more into the mainstream because everybody's phones is running Java, and it's a little, it's a little harder to. Uh, turn it into a story about esoteric hardware or software when everybody and, and their brother is carrying this vulnerability literally in their pocket, you know, and, but it brings to light.
1: Yep. Here we go. I found that section. Log4j isn't the only open source de- debacle to occur lately. Just last week, the creator of two widely used software tools decided to inexplicably disable them via a number of bizarre software updates. Mark Squires, the man behind popular JavaScript libraries Faker and Colors, weirdly blitzed the programs and managed to take down thousands of other software projects that relied on them for success. And and he's offering it for free, so you you really can't complain if if your entire business model depends on it and you're not throwing money at the guy.
2: Yes, but that was deliberate by the developer.
1: Yeah, it was. And if he's the guy developing it, it is perfectly within his right to nuke the whole thing. Nobody's paying him for it, so he can do whatever the heck he wants. As far as I'm concerned, he's the owner of it. And that was his main
2: motive to make people aware that developers that... He needs paid. Yes, that developers who make something for free that a lot of people and companies rely on needs compensation.
1: We
0: need to form some kind of foundation to raise funds to pay these individual... Uh, developers get people to sign up for them and then try and raise the funds for it.
1: Well, you need these, you need these major tech corporations that are making all of this money to donate something back.
0: Yeah. Get a foundation to go around and knock on doors of these places and say, Hey, you're using this code. And this guy is sitting here starving to death and is getting mad about it. So slack. (coughs) Yeah. (laughs)
3: the problem is corporations don't operate that way they want to invoice things they want to have companies that they pay on accounts receivable but see if you give it to a
0: foundation then they can have it as a donation and it's a tax
3: write-off yeah an entire infrastructure would have to be set up for this
1: it's needed so
3: and
2: i mean would there have to be a completely new organization or couldn't for example, the Free Software Foundation do it.
3: They would have to make it part of their charter. It would have to be official. Yeah. Or the Linux Foundation, or... Well, Linux Foundation has
0: long since stopped worrying about Linux, except for keeping the funding going for the kernel. Uh, they've About 80% of their project is non-Linux.
3: Yeah, I suppose that's true.
1: Okay. that That is a topic that we could probably dedicate a whole show to.
2: Microsoft's new security chip will not lock devices to Windows 11 as feared. New PCs released this year that chip with Microsoft's Pluton security chip will still be able to run other operating systems besides Windows 11. While it was initially feared by the open source community and others that Pluton would serve as a means to lock equipment to the latest version of Windows, that isn't the case at all. Instead, in addition to being able to install Linux and BSD, PC makers and even users themselves will be able to turn off the feature entirely. Bruton itself can act as a trusted platform module or as a non-TPM security coprocessor, according to a new report by the register. Essentially, the new security chip will serve as a way for Microsoft to show chip makers how it wants TPM to be present in microprocessors processors going forward. Funny story. Uh, my brother just built, built a new computer and he put it together today and he wanted to put Windows 11 on it and he was greeted with a message that it is, it is not supported.
3: I tried putting it on my daughter's Omen that's got the TPM 2.0 and secure boot, and a I think it's a seventh gen i7.
2: No, that's that's too that's too old. It I think it has to be at least a ninth gen or 10th gen. So crazy recent. That's ridiculous.
1: From what I understand, there will be workarounds at least, um, at first, and like now, there are workarounds for um, unsupported devices. and you know i am okay with them forcing everyone else to to buy new hardware because that will make the bottom drop out of the used hardware market and i profit
3: yeah and windows 10 will be around for a while i guess i guess that's all right
1: i don't mind using older hardware it's more likely that uh linux will actually work correctly with it okay and that is it for our security update Off to the bi-weekly wanderings. First up, I serviced all the bikes in my backyard, getting all of them moving. Although at least one of them could use new bearings in the back, but I don't have the experience to do that yet. Then I suffered because Texas got cold again. Stop doing that. Um, I, I updated the BIOS on my computer and it's not really because I had a problem or anything, but because I'm thinking of upgrading my CPU. There were some security updates involved as well, so it was good to do. But um, for a while there, I was having problems restarting my computer where it would say failure to init. I'm not sure why, and, it, and it's not happening every time. Um, it might actually be because my power supply is super old and I need to replace it. Um <clears throat> but it does seem to be working with the new kernel now. And if I want to upgrade the CPU, I can, um, several people are sending me care packages of fun things to work on. Uh, my, my stepmother is sending me two laptops. Uh, one of them is a 17 inch. I'm not sure about the other one. Bill was sending me a laptop. We'll get to that in just a second. Um Moss is sending me headphones and various electronics and Josh also sent me a pair of headphones. Which Josh? Um, I got the head uh Thacker, Josh Thacker. I got the headphones from Josh, a uh, real nice pair of Superlux HD 681s. I'm actually using them right now if you're, you know, watching on the YouTubes. Um <clears throat> They had a bad 3.5 millimeter jack was definitely not difficult to fix. Um, I was able to get that replaced, but I'm all out of like male jacks. So I'm using a female jack and a uh, male to male adapter to get it working right now. And it, it, it works really well. Um, I was like I said, I was able to get that replaced and I also switched over to the brainwaves ear pads that Josh sent along with them. And um, I need to get out my desktop amp and see how they sound when they're getting pushed. Because if I remember right, these are like 32 Ohm um, drivers inside them. And thank you, Josh. Um, I also got a package from Bill but there was a small problem. Um, Bill was sending me a 17-inch laptop, but what showed up was a very nice Bluetooth-enabled turntable. Um, Amazon tells me that this is a, a $270 device. Um, we have informed the shipping company right away, and we're waiting to see what they do. Um, and don't know if I'll need to return that turntable or not, or if the shipping company will straighten things out with the laptop. I have no use for a turntable other than to either sell it or give it away as a gift, but it is a a really, really nice turntable.
0: Well, I have a use for it, but I probably couldn't afford much on it.
3: So I took the laptop to, uh, well, I'm not going to name names here, but it starts with a u and rhymes with ups and uh they they didn't like the box i put it in so they slid it into this sleeve sort of thing that's that's kind of like i mean it's made for shipping laptops they uh wrapped it up they printed the label they gleefully took my 50 dollars, and uh carried the laptop and the label to the back What happened after that is anyone's... Well, I suppose you can put two and two together and figure out that they got the labels probably mixed up with whoever was sending a rather nice-looking modern turntable to somebody. We're hoping that whoever was expecting to receive the laptop or whoever was expecting to receive the turntable and instead receive the laptop, that they go and take it and...
1: Are like, what the heck, and man?
3: Yeah. Fix this. Because, oh, <laughs> uh, what a nightmare. Yeah. What has Brown done for you lately? Well, there you go, right
0: there.
1: Yeah, if they say that they can't get the laptop, I'll, I'll end up putting this up on the market and probably try to get 200 bucks out of it and try and buy a laptop. Watching the crypto market crash has been fun. Um, I I have followed my own advice and I have not put in more money than I could afford to lose. And as soon as I put it in, I consider that money to be gone anyway. Um, Still, watching the numbers get cut in half has been crazy. Um, If I had the liquidity right now, I would put more money in. But I don't know if the market is done crashing. Um, With everyone realizing that Bitcoin is using as much electricity as it does, equivalent to a small country, it is becoming less and less profitable and more regulated. This most recent crash is attributed to the inflation of the dollar and more so to the potential ban in Russia due to energy consumption. That being said, new ways of working around the energy problems are in the works with the Ethereum two blockchain, uh, for which I do have high hopes. Crypto is not going anywhere but it is still very early days and who knows what the landscape will be in the future um even the us government is looking into using a government backed digital currency which yeah that seems like the obvious way for them to go instead of you know printing out bills they create a digital currency and use the blockchain to to track it and that would also allow them to more correctly tax people for their income and output as it were. Um, now, um, a couple of things I didn't add into the notes here. Um, my, my grandma recently got a virus on her computer and it's got this number to call. And, um, now I'm not in Florida to take a look at it and fix it. And so this has been kind of a major issue. And um, I can't tell if it's just a fake crypto locker virus or if it's an actual crypto locker virus and all her stuff is locked up. And um, even your your low-end viruses, if you don't have the virus protection already on there, they're pretty good at preventing you from installing them. And I don't know anyone in that area that is good enough to run a live disk and get rid of it that way. So, um, what I've advised them to do is pull the hard drive from, um, my, my late grandfather's computer and put that into grandma's computer if she knows the passwords and then she'll be up and running again in no time. Otherwise it's time to do a reinstall and I can talk them through the reinstall, but that's it. What's up, Bill?
3: (laughs) I'm talking to my kids that think this is a great time to come down and put groceries away.
1: You you saw everybody (laughs) rushing through here a few minutes ago. So, yeah, same thing. I thought you were waving at me, though. Oh, no, no. So, yeah, there's not a whole lot I can do to help her from 800 miles away. And I'm not going to drive out there just to fix her computer. And she does have a laptop she can use in the meantime. Yeah, it's running Windows. But if I were there to fix it, I would try running a a live disk that um, allows for scanning and removing of viruses Uh, because trying to do it while the system is running can be extremely difficult in Windows if the um, virus has any type of built-in thing that prevents you from installing a antivirus. And, yeah, that's mostly what I've been up to lately, Moss. How about you? Well, I have been typing. Do <laughs> you want us to come back to you? We can do that. Yeah, I'm done. Okay. Okay.
0: I just installed another 8 gigabytes of RAM in my T560. Eight screws, pop the back, click it in. Didn't even get any messages. I just had 16 gigs instead of eight. Yay. Good job, Moss. We had a lot of fun, me, Josh, Hawk, Tony, and Dale, doing Distro Hopper's Digest once again, our 29th episode since starting it on April 2019. It even ran over an hour, which is a rare occurrence. I think having four co-hosts kind of makes it run a little longer. I'm still current and weekly on Full Circle Weekly News, which I took over from Leo. I seem to have a small but devoted following, been doing that since April. And I still have not mailed that box of stuff to Joe. I considered reopening the Mintcast Book Club, but not this time. Uh, Apparently, I talked to Joe about it, and he was taking some flack for his reports. And so I'll just leave mine off this time. So that's it for me. I don't want to take up too much time here. Yeah,
1: if the listeners have changed their mind and they want us to add in a section of the, the, the stuff that we're reading and listening to, um, I would love to be able to do that on the show. Um, let us know. Send us an email.
2: We could also add stuff that we've been watching.
1: Absolutely. I'd be down
2: for that.
3: Moving on to page seven, let's go to Bill.
1: All right. Well, so, so
3: this week's been another busy one. I haven't spent a whole lot of time working on my computer, though I did uh, take some time. uh, Over the last couple days, I've been setting up the infrastructure for a new podcast. Um, I'm working on a project with a couple friends of mine. And uh, if I can make a quick shameless plug for it, although it doesn't exist yet, the name of the podcast is going to be Three Fat Truckers. Um, It's going to be... Three of us guys that, uh, uh, yes, thank you. Yeah, three, it'd be, it's three guys that you probably wouldn't listen to or talk to about anything important in real life, but we've all got microphones now, so there you go. Uh, I might talk a little bit more about things that we talk about um, in the future. Uh, I've learned that setting up the infrastructure for these things is pretty formidable.
1: Now, um, I have a silly question here um because i don't know as a trucker are you required to get a ham license no no okay
3: now cb radios operate on uh i i assume you're talking about the radios yeah um yeah. they operate on citizens band frequencies which is okay uh what is it 127.185 megahertz which is which is free to use by everybody and As such, it's not very powerful. It's not as prolific as it once was either. When I first started driving in the early 90s, when I came home from the Army, everybody was on the radio, and you got close to highly populated areas, you couldn't get a word in edgewise, but the proliferation of the smartphone... And the newer generations of drivers have come along and are using newer technologies. People have gotten away from the radios. Now, we still use them. My particular niche of the industry, we use them to check in with scale houses and things like that when we get to our customers. But uh, no, ham ham license. There there are one or two guys out there that operate amateur radios from their cab. But it's that's a relatively, I don't know, that might be a dying breed right there um, as I was saying uh, yeah with between the setting up uh, the YouTube page I think we're just going to do a simple thing where we, re- we record something on YouTube and then may- maybe just get the audio from that and just post it on archive.org and do a RSS feed and and all that just keep it simple at first i i my
1: you you should definitely do the process and then bring that building of the process here onto the show and, and talk about doing it from scratch and making okay. your own podcast a lot of people are interested in that and would love to hear about it
3: yeah and and this i'm learning this as i go i've literally i'm at the point now where i've got the youtube i i okay so i secured the domain 3ftpodcast.org. And I've set up one email address because as as you know, it's um well, Google, they they're wanting to charge you more now for the what do we got going on right now? We've got a we got a, a G Suite account and they're wanting to charge more for each individual email address. So what we've done, we're, we're just setting up the one email. So it's going to cost us six bucks a month for that. Plus the $12 a year for the domain. I suppose we can live with that. And then we set up the YouTube channel. Uh, one of the other guys is work working on the artwork to, uh, make a, make an icon and a banner. And I'm, I'm right now I'm kind of trying to, I have no idea how to make a webpage, but I'm, trying to put together something um set up an archive.org account because that seems to be the that seems to be the best way to have a place to host the audio only copies of the podcast so i suppose just to keep it simple we'll probably live stream to youtube much in the same way we we do it here on the mint on the mintcast using obs and everybody will be able to see our lovely faces And then maybe just use something like YouTube DL to get the audio from YouTube and then put that on archive.org. And then that is pretty much where I'm at right now. I've still got to set up the, the however it's done from there to get it out in the world, searchable and downloadable and scrapable by podcast catchers. That's where I'm at in the learning process, but we've got the YouTube, we've got the archive, we've got the Google Docs and the Google Drive, and feed burner. Feed burner. Now, what does that do? Does that generate the RSS feed? I think so. Okay. I don't.
0: Yeah, we. I know we've got a feed burner on DistroHoppers. Tony is in charge of that, so I don't really know what it is, but I know we've got it, and I know it's part of our process. So. I'm just giving you a word to go look up and see if it'll help. Yeah, I, I'm <laughs> going to write that down right
3: now and look that up. Like I said, it's learning process. It's, I mean, it's fun, but you know there is a considerable amount to be done with it. You know, especially if you want it to be something that people can actually go out and find and uh, and uh, listen to. But uh, I think I think it's going to be fun. It's going to be as long as I. I we do, you know, the peek behind the curtain. We'll take individual audacity streams for a podcast like this, a well put together product such as the Mint Cast podcast. We take individual Audacity streams and the person in this case, Norbert, takes these streams and doctors them up, puts them, stitches them together, puts bumper music in, and you end up with a finished product that is a huge task we're not going to do that at first because we don't have anybody with the time but uh that is that is not a task to be taken lightly so you know podcasting is is a job it's 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 respectable
0: yeah it takes me between one and two hours to produce a 10 minutes or less podcast for full circle weekly news
3: yeah and the more people you've got in the stream the more complicated it can get okay so yeah work has been extremely busy i don't see that ever letting up um the whole world is in the middle of a driver shortage right now nobody can get their kids to school nobody can get their trash picked up uh i don't know if anybody's aware Uh, there's a lot less if you live in the midwest or up north there's a shortage of uh snow plow drivers I mean, people are not going out and getting CDLs as much as we would like them to. So, the, those of us that are, that are in the industry, we, if you're willing to do the work, it can be, it can be a positive experience. Um, I've been, I've been home every night. My regular truck's been in the shop. I, th- uh, ruined the throw out bearing, which is a part of the clutch. That makes it go in and out. And then they found a problem with the turbocharger and a lot of other stuff. So I've been in a day cab type truck for the last week and a half. And it'll probably be well into this coming week. So it's been home every night. I've been kind of enjoying the break from some of the crazy stuff I usually do. Um, The only tinkering I have done. uh, So last night. Uh, This new, this new system I bought to do the podcasting on came with 16 gig of RAM, which is fine, but I'm also wanting to do a little bit of playing around with virtual machines and stuff like that too, and, and run two or three of them at the same time and compare, um, resource usage. So I, I thought it'd be, it'd be good to have at least 32 gigs of RAM on it and, uh. Well, as I've said before, my server back here, it came with 8 gigs, and then I spent a considerable amount of money upgrading the RAM on it to uh, 64 gigs of ECC RAM, which is error-correcting code RAM, which is what it is recommended to have if you're going to run a checksumming file system like ButterFS or or uh, ZFS, because it keeps you from flipping a bit in between the in between the more complicated copy on write uh, process well i had noticed that i never even come close to using that 64 gig so i just pulled 32 gigs out of that and stuck it in this machine so now both machines have 32 gigs the reason i did that is because well at first i was just going to buy two more sticks of 16 gig and I looked up how much I paid for this stuff I put in the the uh, server, and they were about $117 a stick. So I promised the wife I was going to slow down my spending habits on the tech, tech gear. So I figured I would just go that route for right now. And that worked out okay. So I think I think I'm just going to let that ride for a while.
2: That's pretty much it for me. How about you, Norbert? Well, I'm almost finished with the exam season, with the winter exam season. But in the meantime, I had a little misadventure with Arch Linux. So I heard it multiple times that with Arch, you're supposed to keep up with the blog posts on the on the Arch website, and sometimes they might tell you that you need to do some manual intervention when updating your system. So recently, people noticed that updating their system resulted in the freeing up around 300 megabytes of space. That's because the Linux firmware package was split up into multiple packages to not have to install as many unnecessary firmware, by default, for every every system. And I looked at the blog post, which says, the Linux firmware package now implements kernel firmware compression. Linux kernel from 5.3 on support loading from XZ compressed firmware, config fw loader compress kernel option must be enabled. So reading that I thought okay I just have to manually add a kernel parameter to my bootloader entry and I should be good to go. But the thing is that all of this config fwloader compress is in all caps so I was a bit confused so I went to so I went to the Archindex telegram channel and it turns out it's not a kernel parameter for the bootloader, it's a kernel flag for compilation. Which means I didn't really have to do anything, as long as I just installed the kernel from the official repositories, so I I could just simply do the update, and it took care of everything. So my issue was that I misunderstood the the blog post. And my complaint with that is, I think it was because it wasn't worded as well as it could have. Because it says a kernel option must be enabled. And as someone who has never compiled a kernel, at least for a system that I was actually using, I'm not very familiar with with, uh, compile flags. And I assume by kernel option, they mean a kernel parameter in the bootloader. And I'm not sure if other Arch users mistook it for a kernel parameter as well, but yeah, the blog post could have been better worded to avoid such confusion, which at least I know I had. And then I did the update, it freed up 300 megabytes, and my system became a little lighter.
3: Admittedly, in my case, running Arch, reading that blog post page has been a... Uh... <laughs> an after measure more than something that I do before I run the update. Could probably because they, I've had so good of luck for ten years now of it not breaking down. It usually I've maybe in ten years I've had four time four cases where I've had to something went wrong and I had to go back to that blog page and it said yeah this this update requires manual intervention and I was able to go back and fix it after the fact but yeah I've not always been the proper arch user that reads that there is uh, there used to be a a project out there called pacmatic that would source that that blog page you would run pacmatic in in place of uh, pacman and it would source that page prior to actually running the update to and i'm not sure how it it worked exactly but i think it uh, searched for keywords in the updates and would require you to manually intervene in those cases which i'm not sure how many people do that most people just use yay or one of those uh aur helpers to run their updates i don't know i've got another problem on mine i've got an update where It's wanting to import a PGP key and then it's saying that it can't connect remotely and then it borks the whole upgrade. So I don't know. I'm almost to the point where I don't have time for it anymore.
2: There is still a package that prevents you from updating until... You read the blog post, so it fetches the blog post for you. It looks for new unread uh, posts, but I don't know what it's called. Yeah, Packmatic used to do that. I don't know. I found it Informant. It's Informant in the URL. Oh, okay. But when I installed it, it uh, marked by default every single blog post from the past one or e- one year or so, maybe two years, which I had to go through and all mark as read. But after that, it it works. I'm not sure if it because the URL helpers are essentially on top of pac-man i assume if you use those it would still work
1: okay and moving on to our announcements our next episode will be at 2 p.m u.s central time on february 6th 2022 and we have a link in the show notes for converting that to your time zone and our next live stream will be at 2 p.m u.s central time on january the 29th 2022 Link for that as well. Now, on to the wrap up. I'm Joe, and if you want to listen to some of my other podcasts, I'm on the Linux Link Tech Show, and you can get that at TLLTS.org. I'm on the Linux Lugcast, which is at LinuxLugcast.com. You can find me on MeWe. You can send me an email, jb at org, or you can follow the link in the show notes and buy me a coffee. Moss?
0: Okay, I'm on Full Circle Weekly News, Distro Hoppers Digest. There are links. I My other contact information can be found on itsmoss.com. And my email is bardmoss at pm.me.
1: And Josh Hawk, who wasn't able to make it onto the show today, you can send him an email joshontech at mincast.org, at joshontech on Twitter, and most other social sites. Or you can listen to him on his other podcast, Crowbar Colonel Panic. Norbert? You can send me an email at norbert@mincast.org. And then there's the other, 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 other Josh. Um, you can send him emails, jt@mincast.org, Josh Thacker on Discord, and at metal underscore Foss on Twitter. Nishant was also not able to make the show today. You can send him emails, nishant@mincast.org recon ghost on instagram recon ghost at github ghost.recon on discord maverick00783 at steam bill how about you
3: well for the time being uh you can email me at bill at mintcast.org i'm bill underscore h on discord Uh, at WCHauser3 on Twitter, and I'm even WCHauser3 on that
1: there Facebook. Okay, before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make MintCast possible. Norbert for our audio editing, Josh Lowe for all his work on the website, Hobstar for our logo, and RD for the animated Discord logo, and Londoner for our time sync. Hosting for hosting MintCast.org and our backup Mumble server. Archive.org for hosting our audio files. And the Linux Mint development team for the distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Thanks, Clem. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the